My guest this week got into his career of watches and writing through an early love of fashion. And like most folks at that time, he started a blog to participate. But he went deep. So deep that at one point he found himself working in the basement of a renowned Savile Row tailor. But all of this was based around a fundamental question that would drive him and continue to be his North Star. How do the things we own shape how we experience the world? My name is Jeremy Kirkland, and this is Blamo, a podcast exploring the world of fashion with the people who shape it. My guest this week is Stephen Pulverant, managing editor of Houdinki. Stephen and I discuss his early career and how his love of fashion led him to watches, and how the team at Houdinki is evolving from a website about watches to a welcoming community for anyone who wants to join. It's like two and a half. Do you have a car? Yeah, we do up there, yeah. We have a uh, 2012 Flex Prius C, a little Prius. Yeah, it's good. That's pretty dope. It's like not a cool car at all, but it is a very functional car. <laughs> it does exactly what I need it to do. Yeah. And uh, it matches all the other Priuses in the uh, in, small town in Massachusetts uh, yeah. parking lot. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, Stephen Pulverant. What's up, man? How are you doing? You're on the podcast. I'm doing good, man. It's good to be here. This is uh, this is this is cool. So we met, geez, we met a long time ago. Yeah, a while very, ago. Very early stages. Yeah, and I think you know you had maybe you had just started at Hadinki. I think so. I think it was. It must have been the first couple months. I mean, it couldn't yeah. have been any longer than that. It must have been what 2012. I think so. Yeah. I mean, so it's been. But what's been really cool is, you know, sometimes, you know, it's interesting because you meet someone and you're like, oh, yeah, like we're kind of the same. And then you get to know them and then you watch them like grow and you have, you know, and we'll talk about all this, but you go from, you know, working at the tiny WeWork spot of Hodinkee with you and Ben, like sitting next to each other, packing all of those watch straps. Yeah, literally (laughs) one desk for the two of us. One desk, one desk, one window. Yeah. Like, so you're packing watch straps till the midnight hours. Then you basically go work at Bloomberg, crush it. You get one of those magic IDs. And then you're, you're on video chats, reviewing Apple things at Apple events. You become, you, you're up in the clouds. <laughs> and then you come back, you make this royal return to Hodinkee. And now, you know, you guys are, have turned into this like juggernaut behemoth of watch media. And what I'm, want to say is it's been a real pleasure to just hey, watch man. you grow and and be become who you are and who I think you know you're born to be and that so it's I'm very humbled and I'm excited that we get to chat like on the record Eric yeah I know, me too and thank <laughs> thank you I really appreciate that it's uh I gotta say I feel like there's there's a group of us who all kind of met like I guess probably in person would have been 2012, 2013. A lot of us, I know, met on the internet uh, before, oh, yeah. before that, uh, <laughs> you know, like 2008, 9, 10. Um, you know, our, our friend Jeff Hilliard, like Jeff and I met on the internet like two or three years before we ever met face-to-face. Yeah. Uh, and it's just been so fun to watch this group of like young, mostly dudes yep. uh, all kind of like find their thing and be successful and work at startups, work at bigger places, kind of do their own thing. Uh, I mean, obviously this podcast, like it's, it's been fun to watch everybody yeah. kind of killing it and, and doing a good job and being happy. 
It's good. It's good. And I mean, but I would say at the end of the day, only one of us works at Hidinki. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> that's that's true. You're 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 doing pretty darn good. Um, but I want to I want to go back, obviously, because sure. I think when we when I first met you, you just moved here, but I don't even know where you're originally from because you went to WashU. I did. I did go to WashU. I uh, I grew up in Austin, Texas. Oh shit! I yeah. would have said Syracuse, but that's no, Ben. My my family, yeah, Syracuse. So Ben grew up in Rochester. Oh. Went to Syracuse. Yeah. See, I don't even know. But uh, yeah, my family's all from the Northeast. But I I grew up in Austin, Texas. Uh, went to WashU in St. Louis for college. Did a year of grad school in Chicago, uh, and then moved here in the summer of 2012, June 2012. I moved here. Yeah. Any siblings? I do. I do have a younger brother, Scott. Who's uh, out in LA, killing it out there? Yeah, yeah. He's working in film and TV production out there. And what what were your? I mean, how long did you live in Texas? I mean, you said you grew up there, but like, like yeah, literally I, uh, your entire time. Yeah, basically. I mean, we moved there. I was born in Boston, a uh, suburb of Boston, Tewksbury. Shout out to Tewksbury, uh, Massachusetts. Um, I can't even pronounce that. Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> it's not not the like most remarkable town uh, around around Boston, but okay. But they're Patriots fans, so it's fine. Yeah, or something. they're Pats fans. Oof, right. God. Um. Yeah, moved down to Austin when I was five uh, and lived there till I was 18. And then my parents lived there till I was, I guess, 21, 22. And then they moved to upstate New York. Uh, and now they're actually in Minneapolis, Minnesota. So all, wow. over, all over the place. What would your, your dad do? He's a semiconductor engineer. So like the total opposite of what I do for a living. But. Wait, wait, wait. What's, hold on. What's a semiconductor engineer? So... So here's the long and short. I'm going to have to send this to him afterwards and make sure I explain this right. I'm sure I'm <laughs> going to botch this. But uh, when you make computer chips, you make them on a wafer, right? They're made. It's a disk. Mm-hmm. And there's a whole bunch of chips on that disk in like a grid. Yeah. And when you make them, there's a failure rate. Like some of them don't work. His job is to figure out why when you make them, why only like 50% of them work and to try to figure out how to get that up to like 60, 70, 80% so that there's less waste. So your dad was basically a computer scientist. Yeah, yeah. He does the, the hardware side of stuff, not wow. software. But yeah, yeah, that's what my dad does. Okay, that, that explains some stuff. Yeah. I think we're getting yeah. it. Yeah, I mean, I come from a big nerd family, for sure. Well, I mean, I don't know. That doesn't seem nerdy now. Maybe, that's may, true. Maybe nerdy yeah. then. That's fair. Um, so, and you, at WashU, you studied? So, both of my degrees literally just say the humanities on them, because uh, I really wanted to invest my money wisely. <laughs> um, but... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I did my my undergraduate degree was this weird little program that WashU had called um, IPH, the Interdisciplinary Project in the Humanities. Hmm. Uh, and it started out as sort of like a traditional like great books thing, like you study like the Greeks and the Romans and the Renaissance, and, right? Uh, all the big philosophers and political theorists and and all of that, and then kind of find a specialty. Um, and I, our, our, my year was the biggest year of the program, and it was like seven of us, you know, it was really small. Um, one of the other seven was my, my now wife, uh, which is how we met. But uh, yeah, it, it was a strange little thing, but it was awesome. And in hindsight, like, I really think it was worth every penny and all of the time and all of the effort. Um, well, that's good. I don't think a lot of people can say that about the stuff that they study. Yeah, and it, like, it wasn't practically useful in a traditional sense but like they really taught me how to think and how to read things and consume things and then think about them in a sort of like well-reasoned way uh and i actually do think the the skills i learned there uh are actually things to use on a daily basis which is weird but but i think it's it's true well hold on i want to sidebar here because as as long as i've known you you have a very interesting way of how you approach things um and i mean that 
uh, obviously very, very positively, <laughs> but, um, you know, from, from just your, your personal taste and your clothing to, you know, your understanding of watches, how you communicate about watches, all this stuff definitely has almost a, a mysticism, Myst- I don't even know, mysticism, I guess, yeah. about it. But I, I feel like this kind of makes sense with some of the, the, you know, the writings and stuff that you're reading. What, like, what were some of the books or things like that that you kind of had to engulf yourself in? Um, so I studied, uh, we had to do a language, and I did Italian for a little while uh, and read a lot of sort of like Renaissance court theory, like Book of the Courtier type stuff, Machiavelli. Um, but I also studied Latin for a few years. Uh, read a lot of Stoic philosophy. Uh, not necessarily my my favorite, but I read a lot of it. Um, some in Latin, some in English. But yeah, I think you know, really for me, the thing that that I took away from it, um, and I tell people this, and they're like, "Wait, you got you got to be kidding me!" Um, is like this. I think I approach things as a as a Marxist, and I don't mean that as a like you know like. Russian revolutionary, like ready to overthrow the government Marxist, but, but I mean like Marxist theory from the, the sort of like mid 20th century where like, I really take seriously the idea that the material things in our world, uh, what they are, how they come to be, how they fit into our lives is, is a deeply meaningful thing. It's like, it's not a shallow or surface level thing at all. Um, I think it's really, really important. And by studying that and kind of teasing out how we interact with the objects in our life on a daily basis, why we like them, why we don't like them, where they come from, how they're produced, those sorts of things, the sort of material conditions of our world are, are deeply meaningful. Uh, and that's, that's something I definitely learned in school and, and studied pretty deeply in, in school and then in grad school as, as well. Whoa. <laughs> Sorry, hold on. I'm like throwing out all the other questions and stuff that I want to talk to yeah, you about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, because that is, you know, just I'll go one step deeper. That's separate than materialism, right? Because I think right. when sometimes people think like that, um, say we'll pick on watches. I love watches. I don't have a lot of watches because I don't really know how to buy watches. I'm an idiot, but I love watches. Okay, but I wrestle <laughs> I wouldn't with say you're an idiot. Well, thanks. I wrestle with owning things, but um, also like with clothes. And we talk about the whole Marie Kondo thing. Where, like if it doesn't yeah. bring you joy and all that silliness but what it sounds like you're speaking about is how what you own and what you interact with physically these like physical items they kind of help shape who you are versus materialism of i just want things to want things i need the things and the things don't make me complete until i have the things yeah i i mean i think the two are are sometimes related but i mean sort of on a bigger picture level, like like we can talk about watches. I think that's a good place, good place to start okay. for, for obvious reasons. Oh yeah, okay. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, I I think one of the things is like look look at watches in Switzerland specifically, right? The modern the country, the country yeah. Okay. Like All like right. watches are a product of Switzerland as we understand them today. Like modern watches and the luxury watch industry is a product of the history of that country, of the culture of that country of the geography of that country, of the specific taste of a very particular subset of people who are born in and live their entire lives in that country. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's really, the, I found traveling to Switzerland, the more I see of Switzerland, and the, the more 
people I meet in Switzerland and the more I get to experience Swiss culture, the more watches make sense to me. They just, they seem so much of that place. Uh, and the journey of kind of coming to understand that I find really fascinating. And hope, hopefully some of that translates through in the, the stories we produce here, here at Hodinkee is, you know, understanding these things as not just like a, a thing that sits on a table or sits on your wrist, but as a sort of like expression of something bigger. Yeah. Well, I, I definitely want to talk about Hodinkee, but let's, I want to well, just go a little bit before that. So how did you get to Hodinkee? Because you moved to New York. Yep. You're out of school. And did you immediately start at Hodinkee or what, what was the step? No, I, uh, so I got into writing, I guess. So my first like real push to get into writing was I was a junior in college mm-hmm. and I was studying abroad in London at UCL and I was living in Fitzrovia about a 10, 15 minute walk from, from Mayfair and Savile Row. Um, and I'd always been a big, like I'd, I'd always been into clothes and into menswear and into style. Uh, and while I was over there, I just got kind of taken with, uh, this was the early days of the rake, uh, magazine. I think there were, yep. Shout out way. Yeah. Shout out to way. Uh, I think there were two, maybe three issues at that time. Uh, and they were like $40 and you couldn't get them anywhere. So, uh, I actually had a friend, uh, Christian Kimber, who now has his own clothing line, uh, who at the time was working at a shoe store in London who stocked them. And so when they would come in, they would get like 20 copies and they'd sell out immediately. He would set them aside for me and call me and I could come down there like later that day or whatever and pick up my copy. Uh, and so I tried, I pitched their editor, this guy Christian at the, at the time on a few things. Nothing ever happened. Right. Um, to write. To write. Yeah. Yeah. Just because I, I was into it and I was like, you know what? Maybe I can learn more by, by writing. So I tried that. And uh, eventually started my own blog, my own menswear blog. Wait, you did? Uh, yeah, dude. Yeah. I, I feel like, how did I miss I think this? It's still, it must still be out there. Uh, okay. You don't have to name it if you don't want yeah, to. Yeah, we but... can name it. It's uh, Simply Refined is the name of the blog. Uh, uh, simply or Simply? Simply Refined. I think the URL is the Simply Refined because Simply Refined was taken. Oh, money. Uh, yeah, I was real real smart about that uh, SEO game back in the day. Whatever. Okay. Uh, literally started it at my, at the time, girlfriend's, uh, now wife's, uh, dining room table one night in college. Like I was just like, I should, I should just do this. So I started writing. Uh, I really learned a lot through that experience. Started freelancing for some folks. Uh, the GQ's departures, Esquires, uh, the Rake of of the world. No big deal. Just no, all the yeah, biggest yeah. magazines. <laughs> you know, I was pretty lucky at the time. Sure. Um, well, you're, you're a good writer, but thank th- you. Yeah, that's yeah. It was. So you start writing for them. I start writing for them, and then I needed a job coming out of grad school. Applied a whole bunch of places. Not many magazines were hiring at the time, and I got a job as a copy editor at Niche Media, which publishes a whole bunch of those uh, city magazines. They're now a part of uh, Modern Luxury. They've been acquired. Oh. But they did a lot of those like Gotham Magazine and Capitol File and Michigan Avenue, like those magazines. Yeah, like they, I think that it's a lot of like magazines like in like fancy hotels and stuff. Yeah, right? yeah, 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 yeah. And like local market stuff. Exactly. Okay. But they were headquartered here. I, I basically just needed while I was freelancing. I needed mm-hmm. something full time to make sure I could pay my rent in Park Slope. Uh, so I was doing that and... Uh, this is a very long way to get here, but uh, it's okay. I we got time. I, yeah, I uh, I freelanced a story for Business Week about the Graves Fullerton watch auction in June 2012. Um, I had to report it ahead of time, so I talked to John Reardon, who at the time was was running the watch department at Sotheby's mm-hmm. and is now running the watch department at Christie's. And I did a phone interview with him, and it was like the third story I'd ever written about watches. 
And he said to me, he said, if you're going to be in New York, you you have to come to this. He's like, if you've never been to an auction, to a watch auction, like this is historic. You, you'll wish you were there. So, OK, mm-hmm. fine. Uh, I moved to New York. It was the auction was two days after I moved here. Uh, my apartment actually wasn't ready. I was living with my wife in New Haven where she went to grad school. And I took the train in for the day uh, and I went to Sotheby's and I went to this watch auction. Uh, and I didn't actually meet Ben there. Uh, I saw Ben. I knew who he was. I was a Hodinky reader. Mm-hmm. Um, but Cause... afterwards, a mutual friend, uh, Eric Wind, connected us. Yeah. Um, I, I actually didn't know Eric at the time. He, he, it turns out, read my blog and uh, connected me with Ben. I asked for some freelance work. And instead, Ben offered me a job. And I quit my third week at Niche Media. Damn. Third Friday. I knew third Wednesday. Uh, so I, I worked there. I stayed on for a couple weeks, but I think I worked there five or six weeks total. So as incredible as that story is, unfortunately, that is just not the case with your average guy who's writing. No, no, um, uh, it is not at all. And I say that, if anything, to, to showcase not just the drive you had, but also you, you were a very good writer. And it sounds, this makes a lot more sense based on a lot of the stuff you were studying in school and and obviously, when I was reading your stuff that in on Hidinki and, and Bloomberg and other places, your writing style is, and I say this about Ben's too. It's very like, hey, come over here, yeah, you know, and, yeah. And I mean that in a way that you are, you guys in Hidinki especially have been able to take something that was once nerdy, like you were talking about. Oh, this is all nerdy stuff. It's like watches. It's little mechanical things into things that are sexy but also really, really beautiful and powerful storytelling. And I think you can only get that when your approach to writing isn't about um, stats. Yeah, totally. I mean, like I if you were a sports writer, holy cow. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe I should get into that. Man. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I, honestly, where, where that kind of desire comes from, the, the like, hey, come over here. Yeah. Uh, is really my, my background in menswear. I mean, I, you know, was a 20-year-old kid in London, you know, had no money to buy. I mean, like I was buying, you know, clothes at Uniqlo basically exclusively at the time. Still yeah. buy a lot of clothes from Uniqlo. But right. uh, yeah, like I, I couldn't afford anything at the stores I was interested in and at the tailors I was interested in, in learning about. But there were a handful of people who really invited me in and were really warm and welcoming and, you know, didn't care that I wasn't a customer. They were just excited that, like, some 20-year-old punk American kid uh, from some school they'd never heard of uh, was excited to be there and to learn. And, like, you know, one day I helped Huntsman clean out their basement. Like, really? Li- yeah, literally, like, sat like there. Like Richard Anderson at the time? Uh, he had already left. He okay. was already next door. But... Uh, I helped their one of their two head cutters on his day off and Poppy Charles, who was doing their PR at the time, uh, and a couple other people just like we literally rummaged through their basement of like stuff that had never been picked up and uh, stuff that was only ever like half finished, like suits, you know, with tags on them for like every famous person you've ever heard of. And again, they have some like punk kid, like putting them in boxes and sorting them by approximate size for a sample sale and like, you know. But like I got to hang out with these people all day and just like talk about this place and learn so much. And I expected when I walked in for them to be like, sir, you can't come in here. Yeah. And instead, these people opened the door and welcomed me in. And it really made a big impression on me. And I, I want, like you said, like the watch world can be kind of difficult sometimes. And 
I don't ever want it to be like that for anybody. Like this should be a thing. If you if you are interested in this, I don't care if you have two pennies to rub together. Like you you should be invited in with big open arms and a and a sort of like warm smile. You know? Yeah. I mean, I you Ben and because I was I wrote and like bad writing, whatever, that I wrote for other places at the time because I loved watches. I also had it on startwithtypewriters.com, that, that oh, goofy... Oh, man. Yeah, right? Um, but um, uh, I remember going to an event with Paul Lerner, uh, an AP event, and I say these names because they're important. Yeah, uh, 100%. Yeah, I'm not and name the, checking anybody. But. And the person uh, that you know, cause Ben was really nice to me about stuff. I remember when I, I wrote something, I got the facts wrong and he like kind of politely was like, Hey dude, you know, this is, this is wrong. Get, get your shit straight. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then I remember I met you and you were this really nice guy. And so I go to this event and I had, I had a, I had a nice watch at the time and I met these other collectors and they were not cool to me. They weren't cool. They weren't nice. It's, it's, I don't, I mean, I'm not naming names to shame anyone, but they, no, they were all like, it made me feel like high school in the sense that like I needed some sort of thing to be accepted and to be involved. Yeah. And it bummed me out. And I was like, wait, I moved to New York for, for this, for acceptance to have this. And I loved watches because of this. And it was people like you guys and also Paul Boutros, who I, who I've, I've said on more than one occasion. Yeah, I remember Paul was like, what are you doing? He's like, no, here, come over here. And uh, some guy was like, oh, you know, maybe one day you'll get, you'll get like a big, he said, I think he said a big kid watch. I could be wrong. Screw that guy. (laughs) So whoever that is, screw you. Yeah. That's, that's super lame. It it was lame. And I felt dumb, but I remember Paul was like, no, 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 this is great. And then Paul basically shifted the conversation uh, to where everyone could participate. And, you know, that attitude that, Dinky exhibits and also people like Paul, I think, are a huge reason why um, watches have also gone from something that's such an insider's club into something that can be really welcoming. And yeah. I mean, and we'll talk about this a little bit more later, but like even on what Hodinky offers, I mean, the, the value proposition stuff on, on Seiko's and it's not just, hey, here is a crazy expensive nice minute repeater that's going to like cost a lot <laughs> the same as like a home yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh yeah i mean like my philosophy on all of this right is nobody needs a watch like nobody needs one you just don't need one and so whether you're a company selling them or somebody who is into them who hopes that they continue to exist for another 20 30 40 50 years mm-hmm. or whether you're an auction house or whatever like if you're at all in this world you should be so happy that anybody gives a shit like this is not something anyone needs. Yeah. So whether you know you roll up wearing a datagraph or whether you roll up wearing you know nothing, you know it's like if you care enough to show up, that's that's huge, and everyone should be excited about that in the community. And if they're not, like, if too many people have that attitude where it's like, ah, oh, if you don't have a nice enough watch, like, don't even bother. 30 years from now, this whole thing won't exist, and then you're gonna go back to the old days where like the guys who were into watches were sitting in their rooms by themselves, just like looking at their watch boxes, wishing they had friends. Like it's, it's <laughs> the community is going to be gone. There's going to be nothing. Yeah. Well, that that's, yeah, that's a very good point. So you start working for Hudinki yep. in 2000, 2012, like 2012. End, of, end of July, early August. And that was awesome. I assume because, you know, obviously you're at the ground floor of what you guys were building. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, what was that? 
like at the time? I mean, because it's just you and Ben, right? Yeah, it was just Ben and me. And, you know, Will was already involved. Will Holloway, who's our uh, our director of content and who who has run our video team the, the entire time. Um, Will was not full-time yet, but Will and Ben knew each other from Columbia, from journalism school, and Will was already doing freelance stuff pretty pretty frequently. Right. Uh, I met Will, I think, like my third day on the job, second day on the job, something like that. Um, but yeah, it was, I remember having these conversations with like my parents and at the time my girlfriend and, and friends and like, I think I'm gonna go work for this like little company that's like a watch blog. It's one dude and he like needs somebody and I don't know, maybe this will like work. I, and they were like, all right, I, I guess like you don't want to go like try to get a job at GQ or something. Like, what are you doing? Uh, but it all worked out and it was, it was great. It was exciting. Uh, I knew nothing about watches when I started, like oh, literally almost nothing. Uh, so Wait, really? Was, yeah, yeah, I knew nothing. Uh, it was trial by fire. Like at the time, Ben had to check literally every story I wrote because they would be full of errors. Like I didn't, I didn't know anything. I was, I was learning on the job. Mm. Um, read a bunch of books. Like I really, I had about four or five weeks between when we decided I was going to do this and when I started. And for those five weeks, basically every waking hour was spent learning about watches so that I could hopefully do this, do this job when I signed on. But um real quick what were the books that you were reading because i feel a lot of yeah. people are always asking hey Ooh. i'm getting into watches obviously you should plug your own book but so funnily enough <laughs> plugging my own book is plugging the other book i was gonna plug which the book ben told me to go get was was gene stone's the watch right. uh which is why when it was when i was approached to to work on the revised version it seemed so serendipitous uh yeah i read that book cover to cover in like two, three days. And that was, that was my jump start. Uh, and then it was, I read literally every Hodinkee post, uh, at the time it was a vertical scroll mm-hmm. blog. It was Tumblr. Yeah, it was, uh, I think this was post Tumblr. Oh, okay. It was post Tumblr, but before we had like a real website. Uh, and so I literally just started on page one and kept the tab open in my browser. And like when I had a few spare minutes would read the next post and keep scrolling. And it took me weeks, but I read every story going back to that first story Ben wrote about uh, Daytona way back in 2000, I guess 2007, 2008. Jeez. So, yeah, it was... Uh, I mean, did you read the Goldberger books? Or, I mean, it's not so, like you can at, read them, I guess. Yeah, I, I went through a lot of things like that. I went through uh, the book, uh, The Movement or Movements um, was a really good one. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a couple of others. Uh, the names escape me right now, but there, there were maybe three or four books that I, I really studied. Um, yeah. And yeah, it was... Uh, it was a lot, but it was it was great. And at the same time, I was learning about watches. Like I knew how to write. Like writing wasn't. I was still learning a lot, but writing wasn't the problem. Yeah, you could uh, tell a story already. It yeah, was just, but I was yeah. learning about watches, and I was learning how to run a business. Like I didn't know any of that, you know. So learning, you know, we had the e-commerce business at the time, and which was, was really new. It was really new. Yeah, it had started that was the watch straps, right? Yeah, it started in April, and I joined the team in like July, August. So it was a couple months old, but. We were selling watch straps. We did the first collaboration with Drake's, those first ties. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, they were. That was the OG collab. Then we did the uh, watch straps with uh, George Cleverly. Uh, so it was, it was this weird thing where, like, I was, I, I mean, I sold our ads for over a year, uh, not when I first started, but, you know, as, as I kind of grew into the business a little bit. And it's like, I, I, I know nothing about sales i know nothing about advertising <laughs> like how how am i doing this and why am i doing this but it right. worked it kept the lights on we kept growing it worked out but uh yeah it was it was really a master class in like how to run a small business 
Um, but then you get a master class in a large business. Then I got a master class in a very large business. Today was the day. I was going to do it. The madness had to stop. And only I, Special Agent Kirkland, could save the day. You see, I knew of Professor Carnegie's plan to cover the world with nacho cheese, and I had the secret to stop it. My team and I worked tirelessly to create an anti-nacho cheese app. We would launch on our phones, but needed to be near Professor Carnegie's private island to do it. So we packed our gear into our trusty away carry-on cases. We knew the impeccably strong German polycarbonate could withstand the long journey. Those four smooth gliding wheels would carry us all the way there. We got on our plane with ease, reached our destination, and were finally ready to stop Professor Carnegie. He was already celebrating by buying a tortilla chip factory. What a fool. I pulled out my phone to begin the anti-nacho cheese attack when... Good lord, are you kidding? My phone died. What the... But we're in a remote location with no power outlets. I looked down. My away carry-on had my built-in USB battery pack ready to charge my device. Yes! I plugged in, charged up, and saved the day. Professor Carnegie was so angry. He said, how did you do it? How did you do it, Special Agent Kirkland? I said... Just go to awaytravel.com forward slash blammo and use promo code blammo to save $20 off your first luggage purchase. But no, it's that easy? Yes, Professor Carnegie, it truly is. Visit awaytravel.com forward slash blammo and use promo code blammo to save $20 off your first luggage purchase. But before I could finish, he vanished, only leaving a note saying, I will return. So what happened there? Yeah, so I got approached. I wasn't looking to leave Hodinkee. I, I really was pretty pretty happy with how things were going. We were growing. Yeah. We were four people soon. At the time, we thought soon to be five. Then I left, and they hired somebody who uh, is still with us now, uh, Ashley, uh, right after I left. But um, yeah, it. I got approached by Chris Rouser, who's this unbelievable editor um, who, who I knew of. I didn't know him personally, but he had run VanityFair.com for a while. He'd been at New York Mag, like really one of the best editors in, in, in media here in New York. Mm-hmm. And he was tasked at Bloomberg with putting together a team to relaunch their, their luxury uh, segment, the Pursuits uh, team. And he approached me about coming on to do, to do watches for them. And it seemed like a crazy opportunity and something that I should at least give a shot. And so yeah, I did. Sure. So I jumped. So I went over there and worked with one of the like craziest teams of people I've ever seen. Uh, it was like, it was one of those things I showed up to work and was like, wait, why am I here? <laughs> yeah. Uh, you were also with Joshua Topolsky, right? Yeah. So Josh Topolsky was there, uh, not on the pursuit side. He was kind of like, I would say bigger picture than that. Uh, oh, okay. I worked with him, but, but not. So Chris ran the pursuits team. Uh, Justin Ocean was, was our managing editor for pursuits. Uh, but then, like Hannah Elliott did our car coverage. Nick Screws, who had been at uh, who had been at Esquire, yeah. did our fashion coverage. Um, Tejal Rao, who's now the first West Coast restaurant critic for the New York Times, was our food editor. Like, it was insane. It was just this unbelievable group of people who each specialized in a little area. Mm-hmm. Uh, James Tarmy was doing our art and design coverage. Just killer, killer, killer people. Um, 
so it was great to learn from those those people, most of whom were much more experienced than I was and and really knew their way around like being media professionals. Right. Um and I also was going back to a place where like my my job at that point was no longer to like sell ads and worry about e-commerce. Like my job was to come in and make good media every day mm. uh and to push it as hard as I possibly could. So well, and I think also at the time, and this is, you know, because you and I, we've always, you know, shared a love for like tech stuff and things yeah. like that too. Yeah. And next thing you know, you're at Apple events and you're making these <laughs> yeah. like videos, like reviewing iPhones and stuff. Yeah, man, that, uh, that came out of absolutely nowhere. Yeah. Uh, How did that happen? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, timing was really, really fortuitous for me. Um, okay. I got to Bloomberg. So I was at Hodinkee basically two years to the day. So I got to Bloomberg in, in August of uh, like July, August of 2014. And in September 2014 is when Apple announced the Apple Watch. And so when Bloomberg was gearing up to cover the Apple event, they didn't really at the time have somebody. They had somebody doing some consumer tech coverage. Uh, this guy, Sam Grobart, who's amazing and was was an amazing mentor over there for for me. I learned a ton from Sam. Mm-hmm. Um. But he was also, he was doing more like more science and innovation focused stuff, less like gadget stuff at the time. Right. Uh, And they figured we had a watch specialist in house. Why not have the watch guy go cover the Apple Watch thing? Uh, So I got pulled into all of these meetings about covering this like huge monumental Apple event. Um, Got kind of thrown like right into the deep end working with guys like Sam and, and guys like Josh Topolsky um, and some other folks at Bloomberg, uh, Corey Johnson, a uh, b- bunch of people, uh, Emily Chang, uh, really the whole Bloomberg team from the TV to radio to web to news side. Um, and yeah, it started out covering the Apple Watch launch and then it became obvious we didn't really have somebody to do some of the other gadget stuff. And then I was already at the events. I could do it i was interested in it and so it just kind of i kind of fell into it which sounds crazy like i fell into being the guy who reviewed the iphone for them but it really was that simple uh and it was super (laughs) it was super fun and i'm i'm still shocked that they gave me the leeway to to do that and to again learn that on the fly but they did and i'm pretty pretty proud of some of the stuff we we produced over there yeah i mean i think one of the things you guys did which I know that Hodinkee was working on this a bit, but I think when you came back to Hodinkee was really exciting to see where was um just your like video coverage. I mean, um your you all of a sudden became uh and I say this as someone who's tried to do these things myself, it's really hard to do some type of like broadcast journalism esque video things where you're reviewing stuff. Yeah. And and you're you know super hard. It, because you know, like right now, like, right, we're, we're doing the podcast, but like, I can kind of sit how I want, you know, yeah, totally. I, all that stuff. But like, you're on and you were doing these videos and they were, they were really, really good videos. Thank you. Yeah. Um, a lot of that due to, and I say the same thing here at, at Hodinkee and like, it is not me being falsely modest. Like it is 100% true. Uh, having good camera guys and good editors is the best right. thing in the world. Like, I've been very lucky the guys here, you know, Will and, and Gray and Dave, like, they are the ones who make sure that I don't look like a total idiot all the time. <laughs> um, and it was the same thing at Bloomberg. Like, you know, I, I had this guy, Zach, on our team and uh, another guy named Sam and, and a few other folks who, you know, they made, they made sure that 
I got to put my best foot forward all the time. And that even if something took 12 takes, people only saw the really good one. Um, 12 takes, really? You know, sometimes stuff took a while. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> but you know, we that wanted to nail it. I get it. Okay. Uh, we wanted to nail it. And yeah, like I said, you know, you don't see the 11 takes of me being like, shit, how big's the screen again? Like, you know, <laughs> like you only see the one where I'm like, this is the new iPhone and this is exactly what it does, you yeah. know? So yeah, it worked. <laughs> <laughs> there was one time actually so i did i did tv occasionally like this yeah uh and i was doing the day the apple watch went on sale okay i did the like live talking head from in front of the store thing like i was on a sidewalk on the upper west side it was pouring rain oh, freezing cold out and uh you know i i'm standing there on the sidewalk i have an earpiece in there's a cam there's one camera operator and then there's like a producer who's literally holding an umbrella over me while we wait for the like call from HQ that I'm about to go on. So I'm not like soaking wet while I'm on. Oh, TV. cause this was live. Yeah, it's live. Oh so my God. they, they cut to me and I can't see anything. I'm standing on the sidewalk and there's a dude with a camera on a tripod across from me and I can hear a producer and I can hear the, the anchors voice in, in my ear. That's all I have. <laughs> and because of the weather, the signal kept cutting in and out. Oh no. And so I'm there and our anchor at the time asked me a question and I only heard the first half of her question. But I know that like my face is live on TV and I'm live and it's like seven o'clock in the morning. It's like prime viewing hours for us. And so I just had to start talking and I just like, <laughs> I definitely, I went back and watched it later. I definitely did not answer her question at all. Like it kind of looks like I blew her off a little bit, <laughs> but uh, I filled the air. It worked. It was fine. Oh, dude, that's scared, scared me. Scared me half to death. Yeah, it was that's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> um, so then obviously you come back to Hoodinky. Yeah, I came back to Houdinki. Um, I had a little interlude there in the middle. Um, I went and worked for six months at Surface Media. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, redoing all of their digital products. Uh, basically got them to a point where they, they could kind of take over. And it just so happened at that time, Ben and I started talking, and it seemed, it seemed like the logical move, so I came, came back here. Yeah. So, and now I think, you know, by the time you come back, you're in this building that we're at now. Yep. And the staff's grown. Yep. I mean, it's, it's, I don't think it was what it is now, obviously, but it was like Hoodinky 2.0. For sure. Uh, it was when I came back, I joke, I was employee one and employee, I think like 17, 17 or 18, something right. like that. Um, well, cause yeah, how many employees are you? If you now we're a little over 30 total. Uh, and it's that's like 25, like, 26 in the office. And then we have a couple people who are remote, okay. who are part-time, but like they're employees, they're not freelancers. And then we have another, you know, five to 10 people who we use as, as freelancers. Jeez. Yeah. So it's a, it's a big team now. Yeah. And then this is when you guys, you come back and you, you like double down on all the video coverage. Um, Jack Forster comes on board. And so you guys kind of build out this very enviable team of not just all watch riders, but watch riders who have really different styles. Yeah. Uh, so Jack came on board while I was away. Um, then Kara came on board. Then I came back. Mm -hmm. uh, then we hired John Buse. We've got James Stacy. We've got Joe Thompson. Uh, it's really wild. I mean, there was one night we were having a little team dinner in, in Basel or something. You know, we were in Switzerland. And I realized that like I had been on press junkets with the exact group of people I was sitting around the table with. But at the time we all worked for different publications. Like I'd been on trips. Oh and God. I mean, even when I was at Bloomberg, like I'd been on trips where the trip was Ben and John and Joe and Jack and me. 
and all like, for different magazines. Yeah, and now the five of yeah. us are all on the same team. And it's like, okay, you know, we've kind of, you know, I won't say cornered the market, but we've certainly uh, made made a dent in it. Um, yeah. And it's awesome. It's such a, such a privilege to work with talented people, you know? Yeah. It's inspiring. It makes you push yourself harder. Uh, and like you said, it's, it's a diverse group of people, so we get a lot of different perspectives. I mean, Jack and I often disagree with each other very strongly on things, and that's <laughs> a good thing for everybody. It's good for me. It's good for Jack. It's good for everybody here, you know, because we get a, a bunch of different perspectives, and then we, we kind of hash it out and figure out what's right. So here's an, an actual, like, hoodinky business-type question. I am curious. So oh, you guys are doing watch reviews, or a watch comes in, or you're going to cover X event, anything. doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, do you guys kind of assign who is doing what based on the person's writing style? Because just so I can kind of like clarify this a little bit further, you know, Jack's writing style, I feel is very, very technical. It's very proficient. I I really like Jack's writing, but you know, your writing, I will read something and I'm like, oh, I didn't know that. And I learned all this stuff. I was like more interested in, and maybe I'm being too vulnerable here, but I was like more interested in your writing because it was something I knew that I could understand better. But when I wanted like deep dives on certain things that I, you know, I don't know, some certain caliber, I was like, oh, cool, Jack wrote it. Yeah. Like, how is that stuff assigned or is that just like luck of the draw? Yeah, it's, it's a mix. You know, it's, it's, we certainly try to play to people's strengths here. You know, um, you know, I kind of like, I have an interest in like design and architecture. So anything that kind of touches those worlds, you know, we, I, I tend to take, you know, uh, Jason Heaton and James Stacy are are like actual adventurers. Like they actually go hiking and diving and mountaineering and and you know those sorts of things. So we tend to give those sorts of stories to them because that's their expertise. Right. Um, but I would say a lot of what we do here, kind of any of us could tackle, and it's about figuring out how we want the story to work, what the angle is. Honestly, who has time? You know, we're we all wear a lot of hats here, so a lot of it is is you know dictated by who's who's free um and that's kind of down to that's a big part of my job here is is managing kind of staff resources and time you know who's who's got time for what who's turning what in when when things are going to go live on the site and it's it's a big puzzle and often multiple things are moving at once but so far we we seem to make it work so yeah for sure and um the other thing that obviously i want to totally talk about is you guys launch a freaking magazine yeah, yeah, we did. We did launch a magazine. What? <laughs> Which is, it's a phenomenal magazine, but like Thank how, you. how, you know, cause I think the interesting thing is when you, you think about digital brands now, um, and I don't put Hadinki in the exact same category as these, but I feel a lot of these newer digital brands, they'll go on and they'll be in, you know, the internet, whatever. And then they kind of start to work their way back into what people would now call like more traditional media. Yeah. So like you guys go in and you do this magazine. And again, it's an exceptional magazine, but like how, how did that happen? Because in terms of the resources and, and just printing and like paper quality, like what? Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it was a big undertaking. I mean, Ben and I talked about doing a magazine in 2013. When it was two of us, I think this was before Will started, so it must have been like January, February, twenty twenty thirteen. Okay, um, or maybe it was right after Will started. Either way, uh, and it was impossible. Like we we went and got a quote. We were like, if we're going to do this, it needs to basically be the quality of a coffee table book. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
And even just like the hard costs were obscene. Like we were going to have to sell these things for like hundreds of dollars to make it not lose money. Like not to make money, but just to not lose money. Uh, and then we figured out like there was no way we could even produce the content. Like there was just no way to make this happen. So we tabled it. Very soon after I got back, I said to Ben, I said, you know what? Let's take this off the shelf. Let's, let's try to make this happen. He said, all right, like if you can figure out a way to make it work, like you've got my support. So, okay, great. So uh, at the time, Kevin Rose was our, our CEO and uh, introduced us as, to some folks, uh, some really great media consultants. Um, and it looked like we can maybe make this thing happen. So we decided to do it. We took the leap. Uh, it took us like eight to 10 months to get the first issue together, uh, probably like 10 months to get the first issue together. Mm -hmm. And we launched it, um, I guess almost, almost two years ago now. Um, and it's, it has been a wild ride. It's a totally different sort of thing for us. Right. Um, it's a ton of work, but it's also, it gives us opportunities to tell stories in ways that we, I don't know if we couldn't on the web, but just wouldn't feel right on the web it's a, it's a different experience and it forces us to to approach things differently and i i think everybody on staff would agree that it's it's a ton of work but it's it's worth it and when you you know go check into a hotel room somewhere or flying through an airport lounge and you just like see a copy sitting there that you didn't put there uh it feels pretty good it feels really good to see that there <laughs> yeah well duh <laughs> yeah, i mean yeah but that, that's a that's incredible i mean it's yes. great I it's mean, like a thing you made is like sitting there or like I, I have once I saw somebody reading one in a hotel lobby, just like a stranger. And I was just like, holy, holy shit, that person like we made this thing and somebody's actually reading it. Oh, my God. You know, yeah. meanwhile, there's also millions of people that are also on your site. But yeah, true. You can't see it on a phone. Exactly. I, I remember um, uh, Tyler Brule of Monocle's yeah. big reason of why he never did like a digital magazine yep. was because of that no one can see you reading it yeah. when you're reading it. And I like, you know, I, I share a lot of different opinions than he has, but I was like, wow, that, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it makes a ton of sense. I mean, like, we view, I mean, if you pick up the Houdini magazine, you'll, you'll see, you know, on the web, we're all about watches all the time. You know, right. we publish maybe a dozen stories a year on the site of hundreds. I mean, we publish almost, a th we published 900 and something stories last year. 980 something I think is that was the final number on uh and you know New Year's Day when I look back uh like 10 to 15 of those are not about watches seriously uh in the magazine like 50% of it is not about watches it's about the the sort of like broader lifestyle and it's about giving context to watches and about thinking about them as part of a certain way of living life that that it is a little easier to get into and a little more accessible and you know, maybe if you're into learning about vintage, you know, Porsche 911s, or you're interested in reading about a John Lautner house, or, um, you know, looking through a fashion spread, and you happen to encounter watches along the way, may maybe that'll give you a way to get get your foot in the door. So that's, that's interesting, because that kind of brings me to this, this next question about you're right. So the, the magazine itself is nowhere near as watch heavy as the site. Um, but the magazine is a Houdinki magazine. Yep. So, and something I've seen that's happened over the you know, past year or so is there is, there's definitely more of a celebration of craft and well-crafted things. Yeah. Um, do you, I mean, do you guys see that, that trajectory continuing to head that way? Like, um, 
and I don't know, maybe this ties back to some of the, the classes that you were having in terms of like these beautiful things and how they shape who you are, but I'm just yeah. curious. Um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's, I think, always something that's been important to, to everybody here. I mean, no, nobody, happily, nobody who works for this company is like just a watch person. Yeah. And to be honest, I, I don't think we'd hire somebody who was only interested in watches. That's just not the kind of vibe we're going for. You know, I, I think there are plenty of people out there for whom watches are an all-consuming passion and the only thing that they're really like, you know, invested in. That's, that's not us. And, and hopefully we can, we can serve those people and give them, you know, one perspective. But mm-hmm. we, we think that watches can be appealing to a lot of people and that the issue isn't that watches don't appeal to people. It's that people just don't know that much or don't understand and haven't been exposed to uh, how these things can be a part of of their lives in a sort of fun way. And it can be everything is, you know, from something as simple as like, oh, somebody who's important to you gave you a nice watch as a gift and that watch then becomes meaningful. Or you can decide that, oh, you've always been interested in vintage cars and restoring cars. And you see that watches are also technical and mechanical and like, oh, okay, there's this other thing now that I can get just as deep into. It can be anywhere on that spectrum. Right. Um, and yeah, I, I think, you know, we will always strive for our content, whether it's a little web story or a, you know, big magazine feature to to put those things in context and that context is important. Right. No, I mean, that, that makes a lot of sense because I think one of the things that Hodinkee has always done and this happened from the very early stages, like when you guys were doing, you know, selling Drake's ties and yeah. things like that, um, is the visual presentation of the physical objects. Yeah. You know, I could take my watch off right now and I could take a photo of it. It's a Nomos uh, Neomatic Tangente. And it's a great watch. Thank you. Well, it's, I, I think I have the same strap as you. You do. I was, yeah. I was wearing that yesterday. I, I, uh, I should have worn it today. I totally knocked it off because I saw your image of you wearing it's cool. it. cool. I'll, take, I'll like, take that. <laughs> but um and you're also wearing a really you know elegant swatch yeah i'm wearing a weird little uh the swatch skin the uh it's like hilla has that watch jeff hilliard does, yeah and so does nick roberts who's who's also here uh yeah it's kind of a little weird cult uh cult object and just a side note on that how much is that watch uh 125 dollars, and it is awesome okay it's so cool so you don't again this is furthering the the point that you don't need to have a 1940s Patek Philippe steel perpetual no. calendar. Nah, you're all right. Yeah, you're good. Yeah, you can go spend 125 bucks and get a super cool watch. Yeah. So uh, the presentation of, of how you guys have displayed these things, I think have really altered. And I stand behind this. I've talked to other people in the watch industry that don't work at Hedinki that, you know, it's, it's kind of an iron sharpens iron situation here. And that how you guys have presented these objects, these pieces, have elevated the entire experience uh, digitally, and then in some, and we'll see maybe now physically um, of a watch in general. Like, because when you would see, I don't know, what, if we go all the way back to like Network Fifty Four, which was a side note, it's a message board of where a lot of watch dudes hung out, <laughs> and and you would see people take these kind of crummy phones, and you see all this like, you know, God bless them, but all this like weird hair all over their arms, oh, yeah, and then no the good. weird wrists. And then you see to what, like, showing a watch and the beauty of a watch now and say Hodinkee, in which you have the kind of marbly table, you have the, uh, the little plant. I love a good piece of white marble. <laughs> white marble and a succulent, man? I am good to go. <laughs> exactly. But, I mean, because I think a lot of this falls back to what 
you know, and, and I say this as a huge fan is, is that you guys turn this into storytelling. And, and that to me has just been, it's been so exciting and, and, and also made me find the things that maybe didn't look so good because I was huh. so used to them in the, the certain environment of a hairy wrist and kind of falling in love with that. Yeah. Well, first off, thank you. I mean, I'm glad, I'm glad you've, you know, responded to it and that you, you enjoy it, but I think it's, it's been an evolution and it's been something that we've, we've had a number of people here who have, who have worked on it and really kind of refined how we're presenting things over the years. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's, again, it's all about context. It's like these, these things don't, you know, I, it drives me crazy when you see like, uh, you know, not to, you know, speak too, too poorly of too many of my, my colleagues elsewhere in the watch world, but like, you know, you get a press release and three renderings, not even photographs, but like full on like render. They're basically illustrations of a watch in your inbox and you write a like quote unquote review. And it's like, that's not, that's not a review. That's, that's bullshit. Like, that's just not what it is, you know? So you can't review a watch that's just a picture of it. Yeah. And you can't like, you can't say too much. And like, we, we talk about this all the time in terms of how we cover new releases is what is the most information we can provide that is actually helpful? And like that we can stand behind, like how much can you say? And we, we all spend a lot of time around watches. We see a lot of watches. We know how to like infer things. We know what certain sort of like euphemisms mean in press releases. Like we get it, you Mm -hmm. know, I, I would say as much as anybody, but you know, how much is actually valuable for us to say about, uh, you know, one page press release and three renderings, you know, I think there's something valuable to say. And hopefully what we're giving people is is just that right amount where it's it's as much as we can without starting to say things that either we can't confirm, we don't know, aren't helpful, whatever. Um, but like I think it's you know it's about taking the thing that a lot of people only experience as a rendering on a white background, like it's it's barely a watch, like it barely qualifies as a watch. Yeah. Uh, and instead, seeing like what does that thing look like in the real world with reflections on it and put next to colors and paired with clothing and taken out in the street. I mean, like we did, you know, some of my favorite things we did last year, you know, personally that I worked on were these these a week on the wrist reviews, which is one of our our flagship products. It's always been one of our flagship products. Uh, and we started trying to shoot some of them more like out in the wild. So instead of sitting at a desk you know, here in the office and talking about it at a table and then shooting some B-roll of it, you know, really taking it out in the world. So I shot one with a a gold-colored G-Shock and, like, we shot it by the basketball courts over on Stanton Street on the Lower East Side, you know? Like, there was legitimately a homeless guy passed out on the bench across (laughs) from us and, like, we were trying to position the camera in a way where, like, like, you uh, wouldn't see that. Yeah. Um, (laughs) But, like, we, we thought that would be a good place for that. And, like, you know, James Stacey, one of my colleagues uh reviewed the Tudor Black Bay GMT and we took it around California like we were in San Francisco and LA we went and hiked up in Marin did the Golden Gate Bridge like really took this thing into the world the way a customer might encounter it and that's that's the thing like people people buy these things and make them a part of their lives they should look like that like they they shouldn't be these precious little jewels that you know sit on a white background or in a box and and never get shown out in the world that yeah. just doesn't doesn't make any sense yeah so not the the simpsons turn the page wash your hands type no thing. not at all man. <laughs> not at all <laughs> that's awesome um we're starting to wrap up here but one of the things last thing i, I want to kind of call and hi- highlight is you guys also shout out you became pod boys we did yeah we did uh 
shout out to Grayson Corhonen, who's our uh, our producer there, without whom we could not make any of the shows we make. Yeah. So it's, well, the podcast Hodinky Radio. Yeah, so Ho- Hodinky Radio. And then um, we also have The Grenado, which is, is produced by uh, Jason Heaton and James Stacy. You know, Jason's been writing for Hodinky longer longer than I have, and and James uh, is is a staff writer here, and they've been making this show on their own for a while now. And we said, you know, after we launched Hodinky Radio, we decided, and we got that kind of going. We yeah. decided uh, we'd make the Grey NATO, which is their show, uh, a part of the family. So we we published two shows. Uh, Hodinky Radio comes out every Monday morning, and then the Grey NATO comes out every other Thursday morning. Yeah, and as someone who makes podcasts. Wait, for what? a living. You make, you make a podcast? Yeah. I uh I am in shock and awe at your ability to continue to just make one every week. Oh. Thank you. I'm serious. Um, it's <laughs> it's so fun, man. I love it. Uh it's right now probably the most exciting exciting project I'm working on. Um it's it's a grind as you as you well know. Yeah. Um you know, an hour of audio uh you know, from my time is a couple hours of prep. Yep. Uh you know, getting to, we record in a studio that's not here in our office. So we, uh, heading to a studio somewhere, making sure all the logistics work out for the guest, uh, recording like intros and outros and ad reads and all that. And then, and then I get to be done, but gray, uh, then has to spend a couple hours cutting, cutting the episode together making sure it sounds okay. Making sure that again, when I'm an idiot, it gets cut. (laughs) Um, and yeah, it's, uh, it's a push, but it's, it's a lot of fun. We've had some really great guests so far, and for us, again, similarly to the magazine, it's a way for us to break break out of our usual box. You know, mm-hmm. like we, it sounds really corny, but um, we say it's Hodinky Radio is not a show about watches; it's a show about people, right? Um, and that's that was really important to me from from the beginning, and important to the whole team. I mean, this I want to make it clear: like this show was not Gray and me, like Skunkwork style, like producing this and being like, "Hey, can we make this?" Uh, this was a team effort, a lot of brainstorming, a lot of format testing. We tested a couple different people as hosts. Did you really? Uh, yeah, we did. We did. Okay. We tested a couple different people. Um, some of whom wanted to do it, some of whom didn't, and we kind of forced them to at least try it. Okay. But, uh, sure. it ended up where like, I was the one I think who was just most excited about it. Yeah. Um, and, and Gray was really passionate about, about producing it. And so we've kind of made it our project, but it, it involved a lot of people and the idea to have it be a three-way conversation, not a straight interview to kind of be a little bit different. Right, right. Um, yeah, it, it lets us bring in voices and tell stories that we wouldn't have the opportunity to tell otherwise. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I'll speak for myself, but I think most of my colleagues feel the same way, that the coolest part of this job, and I'm, I'm, I would bet that you probably feel similarly doing what you do, is you meet such cool people doing this kind of thing. Yeah. And you get to have so many cool, like, weird conversations. Yes, this is a completely selfish career choice. Yeah, 100%. I, I absolutely love yeah. it. I'm I fine. Mean, <laughs> I, I tell people all the time, like, I get paid to travel around the world finding cool stuff and cool people and then to yell on the internet about how cool I think that stuff is. And, very like, true. that's how I put food on my table and pay my rent. Like, that's great. That is a very good life. Yes. Um, and Hodinkee Radio gives us a chance to tell the stories that don't make it through in other channels. So, you know, we're in Switzerland reporting on something and, you know, it's a new product release or it's a factory visit or whatever. And we meet somebody awesome or hear about somebody awesome. Like they don't really fit into that story. Right. Uh, but this lets us tell their story another way. 
um, or to kind of discover different sides of people um, and bring new voices and new perspectives to, to this weird little world we have. That's awesome. Well, Stephen, thank you so much. This was really good. Good chatting. See you, man. Thanks, man. Bye. You've been listening to Blammo. Our theme music is by Tan Lines. If you like the show, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow along with us on Instagram at Blamo Podcast or email us at info at blamopod.com. Still want to connect? Join our Slack group and chat with other friends of the pod. Just email us and say, hey, I want to join the Slack and we'll get you in. Thanks again. We'll see you soon.